This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Parshas Vayechi, everybody. We're dealing with a Pasuk that deals with Dun's bracha. Obviously, in this week's Parsha, Yaakov Inu passes away. He gives the brachos to his sons, right? One of the brachos is given over to Shevet Dun, and Dun's bracha is a strange one. Dun Yadina Moke Achat Shifti Yisrael. He will judge his nation like one of the Shvatim of an Yisrael. Seemingly, he'll judge everyone equally. Every Shevet will be judged equally by Dun. His Shevet is no better than anybody else's. Dun will then be a snake on the path. Another type of snake upon the road. Who bites the heels of horses and causes the rider to fall back. For your salvation, I hope for. That's what I hope for at all times. And it's a strange bracha. What's going on here? If you're going to say he's a judge, then why call him a snake? That's not a nice thing to do. Anyway, I, I, even if he wasn't a judge, calling someone a snake is never a nice thing to do. What does that mean? And then the end of Lishwasko Kivisi Hashem seems to come out of nowhere. What's he saying? What's he hoping for when he says that line of Lishwasko Kivisi Hashem? So here's the idea. Rashi understands these three psukim to be referring to one member of Shevet Dun in the future. That everybody's referring to one person, and that is Shimshon. Now this is Rashi's shot. We're going to argue with it later. But the idea behind Rashi is just simply put, Shimshon will take revenge, that's the din, against the pleshim for all of Bnei Yisrael together. He's going to be a leader in his time, just like David Amalekh was in his time. That's what it means, ka'achad shivte Yisrael, like any other shevet, like any other shofet in Klau Yisrael, Shimshon is going to be in charge. He will act the way a snake acts, with trickery, defeating people in such a fashion without them realizing what he's doing, without seemingly to be acting on the behalf of somebody else. As a rogue agent, you're doing what you want to do as if he has no connections with Klai Yisrael. That's what Shimshon did. Marrying into the Plishti families, marrying three different women or being together with three different women at different times, allowing them to think he's on their side and then killing them from within, there's no retaliation for the rest of Klai Yisrael. In the end, when Yaakovinu sees him blinded and tied up, right, doing sport in front of the Plishtim, he calls out loud and he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kivisi Hashem, I hope that his Yeshua will be great. And of course, we know that Shimshon, at the end of his life, by pulling down those two columns in the Colosseum that he was tied up in, was able to destroy more Pelishtim in death than he did in life. And that's the Lishuas Kvisi Hashem. Targum Alukus and Targum Yonasan also say the exact same thing. A man will get up from this Shevet who will kill as many enemies as he can. It's brought in Sotid Abyurim and Aleph as well as Bereshis Rabba Perch where it refers to different times in his life. Every Pasuk here, all these Tukim and Dun, is referring to Shimshon. Hold on one second, Dave, hold on. So the Rabbin Ephraim says the hint to this. This is a pretty crazy hint. This is like a gematria. If you're a gematria guy, again, as we said last week, when you try this hard, it goes nun ches shin of nachash, nun ches shin, spell it out. Nun vav nun, ches yud sof, shin yud nun is a gematria of 864, the gematria of ze shimshon ben manoach. It refers to Shimshon Beminoch. The Rosh Hashanah is a Pasuk Yud Zion. is 851 plus the Kolal 852 is Shimshon Beminoch. So that's how we know that this referring to Shimshon Beminoch, that's the remez that they give, that the Rabbi Ophrein gives to understand that. Now hold on, Dave, one more. Shimshon understood from this Nevoah that what he had to do was very unique. It was for him and not for anybody else. To be able to fight without anybody else behind you and to know that you cannot allow the Plishim to take any revenge against the people because of what you're doing, that leaves you mamish on your own. 
This is not a person who has anybody who has his back. He's not even allowed to tell people what he's doing. Imagine this. A man who's been a shofate of Klal Yisrael, a leader of Klal Yisrael, and a dayan, a person who everybody trusts and believes he has Ruach HaKodesh. The Ruach HaKodesh was, was biting him, so to speak. It was like a bell ringing in his ears. Ben Tzoro Ben Eshtol, between the two cities of Tzor and Eshtol. This man was an unbelievable tzaddik, and then all of a sudden, forget about going off the derech. Dude, he moves so far off the derech, he marries into a police chief family and becomes a mass murderer. The people didn't know what to do with themselves. The Jewish people are looking at this guy. They're saying, what in the world is going on? What in the world is going on here? I can't even compare this to anybody. It would be something like I was sitting there and watching like Rukhain Knievsky just all of a sudden just say, I'm getting up. I'm done. I'm, I'm going over to the Palestinians. I'm going to the Palestinian side. And then slowly but surely becoming a mass murderer, which is unbelievable. It's absolutely crazy. It, it, it could not. It was such a shocker for anybody. I'm sorry? The police them. Oh, you're saying, you're saying, okay. yeah. yeah, I'm not saying the Palestinians are them, by the way. Totally different people. One, that the Felishtim well, were from Chum. So, no, 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 that's not referring to. Well, that, that's not that. But regardless, regardless, there's no question that the concept was the Palestinians were going down. There were more Palestinians. The Palestinians fought against Ben Esau all the time, and it eventually it ended. It ended with David Melech. I should say it culminated in David Melech completely destroying them. This was all part of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's plan to destroy the Palestinian nation, and it really started with Shimshon, even though they did fight during the times of Yiftach and during Avdon and Shamgar Ben Anas. But nonetheless, the main, happened, the main thing happened right over here. So what's the lesson? So what Moshe Feinstein has two major lessons to learn from this period. He says, lesson number one is that even though he does things that are very difficult for us to understand, he's still mm-hmm. doing everything L'Shem Shemayim. He does everything L'Shem Shemayim. And again, the reason why we know that, the reason how we know that is simply put because the Navi starts off, he had a Malach speaking to his parents about how great he was going to be. He was a Nazir Shimshon for his entire life and we learned those halachas from him. We say that he had Ruach HaKodesh and then afterward we tell you, and even when he goes to marry that Pelishri woman, his parents didn't know that everything's from HaKodesh Baruch Hu. So granted, it seems strange when you're reading through Shimshon, almost seems like a Hollywood movie, but Chas V'Shalom, we're talking about one of the greatest Gedolim to have ever lived. One of the greatest Kedolim to have ever been around. Says the Doris Moshe, this is the thought process we have to have when thinking about those things that Hashem does for us. Even though we don't fully understand it, we have to know and believe that it's good and in our best interest. This does not allow us, the Hector, to be able to go out and do whatever we want, because the Kaddish Baruch Hu surely wants this for us, because I'm thinking, like, oh, this is the way it has to be. Ramosha's understanding, the way we say, Dun judges his people, like one who, the one who is the Shevet of Yisrael, Shevet Dun's most famous member, which obviously is referring to Shimshon, will help us understand how to judge even a Kaddish Baruch Hu. If we see Shimshon in the right light, this is a person who was doing everything L'Shem Shemayim. There was a plan behind everything. That everything he did had an end game. And the end game was destroy the Pleshti nation. Then we have to start understanding a Kaddish Baruch Hu as even if something seems a little bit questionable. How in the world does a Kaddish Baruch Hu do this? Why would Hashem do that? Why is this happening to me? There is an end game. The end game may not be in our sight. We might not get it. But there is an end game. And we have to look at it in such a way. So to speak, as if to say, Ke'achad, Shifti Yisrael, Ke'achad means like the one, you know, obviously uppercase O, that is ruling over the Shvatim of Bnei Yisrael. That's how we look at, at Shimshon over here. Another lesson, says Ramosha, is just like Shimshon attributed everything right back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and said that it's all belonged to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even though he had otherworldly power, this power that he was able to 
tear a gate off of its hinge and put it on his shoulder to be able to carry it around, a massive gate in front of an entire city, even though this man is able to kill so many people without anything, without any orders. He caught 300 foxes. If you catch one fox, I'll give you a dollar. Maybe two. Maybe a $2 bill. I'll give you that. And then you tie their tails together? That's the most unbelievable thing that I've ever heard. There's nothing like that. And then put flames on them and send them to the police chief fields. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. When we see our decisions bearing fruit, the ideas that we've had that work through, let's say five years ago, however many years it was, you were like, I'm into Bitcoin. And you're like sitting there like, I've got this great idea. Let's say you have this unbelievable idea and you're there. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. It's a cutter sparkle to put the idea behind you. And Kaddish Baruch Hu was behind it all. And that's what Shimshon was saying the whole time, telling Delilah that this is what a Kaddish Baruch Hu has done to me and my powers and my hair, etc. It's not me. It's not me. It's from what a Kaddish Baruch Hu has given to me. Yeah. I don't understand. So why do we consider him aside if, you know, he, the, his emotions got the best of him for this woman and he allowed him, heard him Hold on. This, that's what we're saying. Not to do that. It's a plan. What happened with Delilah is strange. And may have been a result of everything else. It may have been a result of keep going in that direction and look what happens to a person. Even Shimshon, the greatest, the greatest person to have done this, even he ended up going down. But I like looking at it the same way that if you've ever read the book Samson's Struggle, that it's become from now. So it's Shimshon's Struggle now. I don't know if anybody's read it. The greatest safer, the absolute greatest, safer, totally, a, it's a must read in order to understand who Shimshon was and what he was doing, etc. It seems that toward the end of his life, he kind of understood he wasn't going to last that much longer. The police were after him. They wanted blood. They wanted to kill him. The only way that he could get around, it may have been, again, this is just a thought, that he was willing to sacrifice his life, give himself up, so to speak, to kill more police in the end. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to cost him dearly. But he figured, if I'm going out, I'm going out with everyone. Maybe he understood what he had to do here, and maybe that was part of the plan itself. I don't know, and nobody knows, but that could be that was part of the plan itself. Panim Yafos quotes Midrashim that Shimshon was a true shofate and that he judged every person equally and did not take anything from anyone else. He was ke'achad shifti Yisrael, meaning even if Shevet Dun, a guy from Shevet Dun, had a judgment against somebody from Shevet Yehuda, for example, he understood Shevet Dun does not get favoritism in front of everybody else. He judged every shavit in that way. And that sort of thing, it, he was like Moshe Rabbeinu and Shmuel and Avi. Moshe Rabbeinu never took anything from anyone else. He said, Lo chamor I never took one donkey from them. And Shmuel and Avi said the same thing. Shimshon was the same thing according to the Medrash Rabbah. He would never take one thing from B'nai Yisrael to judge and do what he was supposed to do. And he understood that this is the way you're supposed to be. Once he did that, he was successful in war. That means his battles went the way that he wanted it to go. Because he was successful in holding himself back and not allowing his taivas to get a hold of him, he made sure that he was going to be successful in everything he did when it came to battle. That's what it says in the Midrash and Shoftim and Yudzayin Chavchas. That's the idea behind it over here, according to the Panam Yafos. And it's amazing that Shimshon was that great of a, uh, a Shofet. Now, Shimshon himself may have doubted if he had a Chelek in Olam Haba. And I know that sounds strange. We're talking about a Shofet in Klau Yisrael, who a Kaddish Baruch who said, I am telling him what to do. But he may himself have doubted. He said at the end, May I die together with the Pelishtim? He said, Tomos Nafshi and Pelishtim. Somebody who commits suicide, as we know, is not somebody who normally gets some type, of, uh, some type of reward. They normally get out when it comes to these types of things. It is ridiculous to be able to say such a thing in such a way, but it's possible that he himself, the Orachayim HaKadosh said, maybe Yaakov's davening for Shimshon here, that he should get some sort of chalak, that he should for sure get something in Olam Haba. And maybe that lesson is even stronger for us. Shimshon was willing to lose 
even this world so that B'nai Yisrael will have the Pelishtim gotten rid of forever. That he's willing to wor- wor- lose not only this world then, the next world as well. Olam Haza and Olam Haba. This is true Mesiris Nefesh. And when Yaakovinu saw that he was willing to do it, willing to give up everything, Olam Haza and Olam Haba, for this to happen, then Yaakovinu said, I'm going to dab him for this person. Yeah, Dave. So, I mean, you sort of answered it initially with the uh, Gematria thing. Yeah. But why do we immediately, I know who's the most famous guy in Dab. Like yeah, why all of a sudden, right? So, so, so give me a second with that. If you turn on page three, we're going to get to the Rashbam. Give me a second. It's a great question. Why all of a sudden we're just talking about Shimshon? Now look at the next part. The Rabbeinu Bechaya says Shimshon was compared to a snake. I wrote down over here a bunch of different things in which the Shimshon is compared to a snake. There's also a Miam Loez over here. There's a Medrash Rabbah that mentions another four or five. I'm going to say some of them, but not all of them over here, right? There is such a thing as a charm for a snake. I don't know how it really goes. It's sort of like the movement, not the music because snakes can't hear the same way that we do. So when you have snake charmers going like that, it's more of the movement that the cobra is able to mimic as it goes through, and that's what makes it look like it's there. But there is a charm for a snake. There's something that can lull it into a sleep. Shimshon had one downfall, and it was his taivas nashim. However that manifested itself in some way, that caused him to be lulled into a sleep. Somehow, that was a bit of a problem when it came to him. This snake is most effective when biting low, and Shimshon was most effective when he went for the low beam in the Colosseum and beat the Pelishtim in the most unworldly fashion. Not when he went straight against them, but he went in a strange fashion over there. The snake needs no weapons to kill. It has its own weapons in its teeth. Shimshon also didn't need any weapons to kill. He had his weapons right there, right? He just went up against them and he was perfect in everything he did. It's amazing how it goes through. He says that snakes take revenge. I don't know what that means, but I will tell you that black mambas are very well known, not just Kobe Bryant, but black mambas as a whole, right? In North Africa, in that Northern Africa territory, anywhere around there, if you go into their territory, they're very territorial. If you go into their territory, they will chase you down and hunt you till they kill you. That's what black mambas do. It's a crazy type of snake. So it could be that's where he gets it from, that certain snakes have this act of revenge. You went into my property, I'm going to go get you, and so too Shimshon as well. His whole life is taking revenge against the Pleshtim. You did this to my old wife, you did this to my, husband, my father-in-law, you did this to those Pleshtim, I'm going to take it back. So I, that, that's the idea behind it. This Sforno brings this Jush and says that Shimshon was like a snake called a Tsiphoni. The Arabs call this a Churman, and we would probably call it from Harry Potter range, a basilisk. A basilisk has the ability to, come on, let's see how many people are nerds here. I'm just saying. Turn you to stone with his eyes. Very, very good, right? It obviously has the ability to look, which is totally a natural thing, right? Very good. His power, not in his eyes, his hair. The eyes. He lost because of the eyes, because he looked. Oh, the downfall. And Tesema Bays and Sota. Yes, 100%. But regardless, I know Baruch Hashem, I don't either. But it can kill with its look and its sound. I don't know what that means exactly, but that's what it's supposed to be over here. Shimshon did the same thing. So he says that's the idea of what the Tsiphoni was, that just by looking at people, he was able to kill them. I don't know what that means either, but that's pretty awesome. But it means he didn't even need to touch them necessarily. He would kill them just by his ultimate strength. It could be that there's another thing called the Shvifon. The Shvifon is a type of snake, he says, that is thin and lives in trees and goes down onto unsuspecting animals and traps the animal and gets it up. I think it's like an emerald tree boa, if anybody's seen those in like zoos or whatever it is. But emerald green tree boas, they stay on top, they're rolled around, they're like wrapped around a tree, and if they need to, 
they come down, grab something, and pull it back up. So too over here, there's a tactic that Shimshon used of guerrilla warfare in order to defeat all the Pleshim, and that's what it refers to over here. The Ramban quotes Yerushalmi Trumos, Parakas Mishnah Gimel, that this Shvifon is as thin as a hair, and it splits the ground in front of it when it goes. I have no idea what that means. No clue. But I think that the idea behind it was that a small hair, just one person, one person has the ability to make earthquakes. That Shimshon had the ability to destroy people in his wake. So to the snake, so to speak, even though it's so small, has the ability to do such many great things over here. Chizkuni says, done is really like the snake. The strength of the snake is it needs one drop of poison in its victim and it destroys all. So too we, when it comes to us, we also only need need a tiny little bit to destroy your enemies. Shimshon as well, the idea behind it. There is another line of Shimshon that, did you know this? Shimshon was lame in both legs. Lame in both legs. Bilam was lame in one leg. Shimshon was lame in both legs because it says by Bilam Shefi, it says by Bilam Shfifon, which meant he was doubly lame. (laughs) This throws for a loop any, any type of movie or any type of TV show. I don't know what they have with Shimshon. Like when you think of Shimshon, you're thinking of this huge, strong guy with these massive muscles building off of muscles. Like he makes a muscle and there's like another muscle and another muscle comes up and he's like, I'm going to beat you up, right? And the muscle on the muscle beats you up. That's what you think when you think of Shimshon. And it could be he had those muscles. I don't know. He's kind of beaten up by his father-in-law. His father-in-law wouldn't let him in the house at one point. You don't really see that. But he was lame in both legs. I, I don't even know what that means. Like, what was he doing? Like, it just meant that he was, he, he is not what we're picturing over here. Now, again, as a Talmud Chalkam, I can see it, that, that that's a possibility that he wasn't able to move around as much. But this is the most unbelievable thing in the world, but straight out, so did Yud. Maybe that's what it meant, that he's like a snake, simply put, a snake can't walk. Neither could Shimshon. He went around, somehow he was able to get around in some way. The idea is that everything he could do, everything he did, right, he did, and he could never stand up straight and explain to everybody what he was doing. Maybe that's what it means, that he was lame in both legs. But if we take this literally, and we don't say that it happened at the end of his life, we say that he was always lame in both legs, that's a pella beyond a pella. I can't even begin to understand what that's talking about. I don't even understand it. I don't know what it means. But it's an unreal Gemara over here. Okay, the Shach, you just know, quotes the Zohar. Do you guys remember what happened to Bilam when Bilam flew away in the war in Parshish Matos against the Midianim? Anyone remember what happened? He flew up in the air and Bilam flew up after him and he showed him the Tzitzah Kodesh. Ah, Pinchos, I'm sorry. Pinchos flew up after him and showed him the Tzitzah Kodesh. So there's another Medrash brought by the Zohar that Silya ben Dun was the one who brought down Bilam, that Pinchos couldn't do it and Silya ben Dun was able to do it. And Silya ben Dun is what we're referring to over here and the snake refers to him because he was able to beat Bilam who had two snakes on top of his swords. That's an unreal Zohar. I don't want to go into that because that's crazy. But it has something to do with somebody else over here. Now the party Yosef has another piece over here. Sam Sofer asks why Naphtali and Dun are separate from another. If you go through the brachos, we all know, right? There's should be Yosef and Benyamin, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehudi, Yisachar, Zvulun, and then there's Dun, Naphtali, God, Usher, right? Now that makes sense. But in the order of the brachos, it goes Dun, then God and Usher, and then Naphtali. So why are Dun and Naphtali separated from one another if they're full brothers, while God and Usher are not? So why is it Dun and then... So he says that the most famous person from Naphtali was Devorah, Hanaviyah, and Barak. In the times of Dvor and Aviyah, the way they won the war against Sisra was through an act of Arias, act of Arias, right? But the act of Arias was done bitsinius. You don't know it, you can only see hints to it. And Devorah herself was a Tsunua that sat under the Tomer so that she wouldn't have an issue of Yichud with other people. So Tsunius won those wars. Says the Chsam Sofer, by Shimshon's time, it was an act of Pritzus. 
that the way that he defeated the Pelishim was through the opposite way, through Pritzas. So because their ways of defeating were in two different fashions, Dun was doing it by some act of Pritzas. While Naphtali was doing it through Tznias, they're separated by God and Usher to show that their Yeshuas are different. Yeah. I'm sorry? 100%. Yeah, literally Pritzas and breaking through and doing whatever he wanted to do. Now the Rashbam, and here's getting back to your question, I think, Dave, I forgot who asked it, Dave Roth. I forgot who did. Dave, the Rashbam and the Chizkuni say it is ridiculous to assume that these Psukim and the Nebu of Yaakov referred to one man in Shevet Dun who ruled for a total of 20 years. That just sounds so ridiculous. We're talking about one person? Shevet Dun is getting a bracha. And Yaakov's like, I see one guy. And Dun's like, really? Just one? Is there like a second guy somewhere? Is there another guy? No, no one. Just one guy. The rest of your kids are worth nothing. But there's one guy who's going to get up. I mean, there still is Aliyah ben Achisama who made the Mishkan. You still have Silya ben Dun who killed Bilam. There's some other people that are great and done. Right? Why in the world is it just referring to this? She says, there's no way even, especially because this person died such a terrible death. It's not like we're dealing with somebody who like lived a great life and at the end of his life, he died together with his family and he's like, everybody, everything's all good. He died a horrible death under the Pelishim in the Colosseum. Why are we referring to him? Yeah. Shevet Dun was in two different places. One was on the left-hand side of Eretz toward the bottom by Yehuda. Their original piece of land was by the Mediterranean Sea, right, right under like Usher and Zvulun. They were there by Yehuda on the western side, right there, right above the Pelishtim, actually. And then later on, at some point, well, by, Pileget, by uh, Pesel Micha, they went up north, and they took a little piece of land on top of the Lebanon, the Lebanon area. They took that area as well because there wasn't enough room for them. There wasn't enough land there. Now, it's possible, right, it definitely is possible. We do say, Echad Bedunda, Echad Sheva, that when they put those idols of Yeruvim Benevat, one was all the way up and one was all the way down, that Dun was far enough away. But there were definitely two lands, at least what two lands that Dun owned in which they were going from one to the other. So says the Rashbam, the idea is, is this really refers to Shevet Dun as a whole. He says, they were the Ma'ase for all of the Shvatim. They were the ones behind everybody else. If anybody wanted to fight Klau Yisrael, Shevet Dun turned around and beat them up. That's what they were there for. They were there at the very, very back, taking care of anything that needed to be done. So for that, done. <laughs> Cute. So either way, they frequently went to war. They frequently went to be able to destroy. And because that happened, Dunn was a shavit with brave warriors. And Yaakov was blessing them that they should be like snakes upon the path to destroy anyone who tries to gang up on Klau Yisrael from the end. That would be that. I personally don't quite understand what the Rashbam is gaining from all this. The Rashbam's problem is, is that he's referring to Shevet Dun, and he's saying, you're going to have one guy who's going to rule for 20 years. So instead, you're talking about Shevet Dun for 40 years when they're in the Midbor, and that's the only bracha you're giving them? You're not blessing them for what's going to be when they go to Eretz Yisrael? Because this bracha is only for the Shevet Dun when they're in the Midbor, and they're behind, and they're the Maasev, but they're not the Maasev when they go to Eretz Yisrael. So it's strange to me what the Rashbam's doing. Why in the world is that a better answer? You're dealing with 20 years with one guy versus 40 years with the whole Shevet. I guess that's better because it's the whole Shevet, but it's still limited. Why are you limiting the bracha over here? David Ezra says just the opposite, really, that Shevet Dun was always strong people. There would be warriors their whole life, but Yaakov was worried that they would be compared to a snake when he saw this Nevoah and he thought about Dun and he saw a snake in his mind, he said, oh no, 
How in the world could they be like a snake on a path? That's a bad thing. I don't want Shevet done to be like a bad thing. That's the mitos of a terrible creature. Kliyaka says that Moshe later therefore compares Shevet done to a Gurarie, to like Yehuda, like a cub of a lion. Said they would be greater than that, that they're more than just that. Maybe those bad mitos are going to come out in some different type of way, and that's the idea behind it. There are those that say, the Rabbeinu Bechayi says in Parsh Bamidbor, that the picture of the Degel of Dun was not just a snake. It was a snake with eagle wings on it, which is basically a dragon, right? A snake with eagle wings. I, I, I would assume that's like, a, I think they call it a worm, right? W-Y-R-M. What? Samhanim has that. Oh, the paratroopers, right, right, they have that. This is supposed to be over here. So maybe that's, like, maybe through the prayers of Yaakov, you know, he was able to create wings undone to be able to make sure that he wasn't just a snake. He was a flying snake. And that's even scarier and very, very scary. I, I would assume that that's a little bit there. But at least to make him a little bit more tahor, to give something a little bit more to him. Then it says such a huge chiddush in this vein. Again, we're off of the Shimshon part now. We're saying that Shevet Dun on his own, what, there's something great about him, something warrior-esque about Shevet Dun, how they're going to be a snake. Says the Nativ, Dun was into court systems and mishpat. If anybody's done Psachim, the Gemara Psachim, and Daf Dalit, and Daf Dalit it says there was a man who constantly took everyone to court. And when they looked up to it, they said, there's something wrong with this guy. Everything that happened in business, he's like, let's go to court, let's go to court. Right? And they looked at him and they realized he must be from Shevet Dun. They looked into his yichus, into his lineage, and they saw he is. He's from Shevet Dun. So apparently there's something about Shevet Dun where they want to see everything happen the right way. They're yusher people. They're not the types of people who will cheat even a little bit on their taxes. If it's not totally usher, I don't want to do it. That's the people that Shevet Dun are. They're the ones who will go to court to make sure that everybody has it fair and square, and that's what it's going to be. They may not have been very well learned in Torah. Learned in Torah. It could be they didn't actually learn Torah as much. We don't see anyone from their Shevet being known for being a massive Talmud Chacham. At least, again, I, it's me. I, I don't know for sure. But then it's even saying that's not what they're known for. They might have been Talmud Chacham from Dun, but that's not what they're known for. It could be they were Amir Ratzin. But nonetheless, there was a Choshev thing about them. They always wanted things to be fair and just. Don had seichel. Don had a good heart. His judgments were equal to the dinin made by Dayanim, who were tremendous Talmud Chachamim. It is not just luck or coincidence. They judged things fairly based on what they saw and what they thought it should be without the Torah. And that's a huge chiddush from, from the Nitziv. That the Nitziv says that they were allowed to be judges even though they didn't know the Dine Torah even though they weren't experts, they weren't Talmudic Chachamim, but they were allowed to do it because they had tremendous seichot. That's a huge, huge chiddush. But because of that, and they were always fair and square, and that's what they did, they were zokot as something that other shvatim didn't have. They won wars in strange ways. Because they were done yadin amo, that they judged their people fairly, ka'akad shivte Yisrael, everybody as one, Therefore, they were Zoha, they were They were able to defeat people whenever they go through. Yehuda may have won wars with his Koachat Torah, with his ability to learn. And we all know the Gemara, right? That everything that Yoav did on the battlefield was because David Amalek was learning. David and Yoav were from Shevet Yehuda. Shevet Yehuda won the wars because somebody was learning back behind. Shevet Dun may not have needed that. Shevet Dun may have won wars through his power of Yashrus, just by being Yashur. I'm not comparing this. I don't want to compare this because I don't think it's a fair comparison to people that are chayalim nowadays, right? But for us to say that there aren't chayalim out there that aren't good people because they're not religious, let's just say, right, 
Maybe they have a sense there's something there that could make them great people that will allow them to win wars in miraculous ways the same way the Nitziv says that Sheva had done one wars. I'm not, I'm not making a fair comparison here because I don't know if that's what the Nitziv wanted and it may be an extrapolation of mine that is not a fair type of extrapolation. I don't know. I don't know if it's that there. But if I'm right in my assumption of how the Nitziv is learning, he's saying Yashrus, just Yashrus, being a good and fair person gives a person a koach that... Anybody can have just by being that. That Koach HaTorah could also give you, maybe even in a higher form, but Dunn was able to win wars in a miraculous ways just by being that Yasher. Obviously, it's not a permanent solution. We see what happened to Shimshon, right? We see that it didn't work out so well for him in the end, but nonetheless, the concept is still there, and that's what Yaakov Yudavin for, that even a person like this, even a person like Shevet Dunn, that doesn't have that Koach HaTorah, can still have a power, can still have a tremendous Koach. I think that's a, a, a tremendous line over here. Belzer Rabbah takes the Rashbam's question very seriously, and he says, certainly there's a message for the future, and it's not just referring to Shimshon. He says, there will be paths for B'nai Yisrael to take in the future. Many different paths. Some of those paths are going to lead to Kedusha, to Mitzvot, to Chesed, to all those types of things, to depending on what it goes to. And unfortunately, there are others, right, that are going to be the other directions, other directions that you might not want to go through. For that reason, a person always has to be vigilant. Be a snake on the path, knowing which way to go and which way not to go. Take your time and figure out what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Says the Belzareba, the lesson behind Shevet Dun is to judge every road that you're about to take and figure out what is the right thing for you to do so that you know when you're going in the proper path, this is good. And sometimes when you go on the improper path, to back up and go in the right way. Now we have the line at the end, I don't have a lot of time to be able to explain this. According to Rashi, as we already said, meant that he was davening for Shimshon when he saw he was going to die. Ksav Kabbalah says there are people that said that this Pasuk was said by Yaakov. It was never meant to be part of the bracha. Yaakov's giving the brachos and he's dying. And he got to this point of the brachos and he's like, I think I'm going to die. And he said, HaKadosh Baruch give me a couple extra minutes so I can finish these brachos. And when Hashem gave him the extra couple minutes, he continued with these brachos, with the brachos afterward. That's funny, right? Because it's not part of the bracha at all. It just means Yaakov, you know, interjected in the middle. It's just like, oh, uh, five minutes. Five minutes okay? Good. And then he went on with the bracha for God and Usher. The Ksavah Kabbalah says, we see no riot of that anywhere. There's no measures like that, nothing. So anybody who says that, he says is a fool. There's no reason to say it. I thought it was funny, so you have to mention a foolish shot if it's funny and the Ksavah Kabbalah mentions it, but that's that. Rashi already said, it referred to that. Targum Yonason said that he saw that Shimshon's end would not finish the Pelishti threat. He would destroy all the leaders of the Pelishti. He would destroy many of the strong men of the Pelishti, but would not end the threat. So we asked for Yeshua, which will be greater, given by a different Mashiach. He saw that Shimshon was a starter for Mashiach, but then he saw that someone's going to have to end it. If this is not the Mashiach, said Yaakov, if this isn't it, then I need somebody who's going to be better. Give me a full Mashiach. Somebody who's going to be a real Mashiach. Somebody to come in afterward. And the truth is, what Shimshon did is an unbelievable thing. The Chassam Sofer says the craziest thing in the world. He says, Shimshon did start the Yeshua. How did David Melech become well-known? Does anybody remember what he did? He killed Goliath, right? By killing Goliath with a little slingshot, he became well-known. Shola Melech had to ask, who is this kid? Right? And Doiga Domi got into a fight with the other people around saying, this kid is Roy or not Roy to join Klau Yisrael. Big Shiloh because he was the son of Rus. Rus was a Moavia. The question was, could a Moavia woman convert into Klau Yisrael? But everything was there because he killed Goliath. Where did Goliath come from? 
So Chassam Sofer quotes a medrash, and the medrash says that Shimshon, when he was in jail, he was tochein barochayim, grinding in the grinding mill, which literally meant they had a little thing over there, and they had all these seeds down and below, and he went around and around. Usually it's done with donkeys. They would turn around and around and around, and underneath there'd be like a little thing that crushes the grain, and it would turn it into like tiny little seeds, and it would crush the grain into flour, etc. That's what he would do. So Shimshon was strong, so he was able to go around and around and around. He was able to go and take care of that. But the Medrash says, Tolkien Berachai meant that the Pelishti men brought their wives to Shimshon in order to have extremely strong children. They hoped that the progeny of such a strong man like Shimshon would give birth to a whole race of Pelishti children that will be strong and warrior-like. They weren't wrong. One of the women who went was Orpah. Orpah, if you'll remember, is the sister of Rus. Rus and Orpah. Rus joined Klai Yisrael. Orpah stayed back. Orpah and Shimshon had a child, more than one child, but one of them was... Goliath. Now, when Goliath came and fought against David Amelech, and David Amelech defeated him, what Shimshon did by birthing a Goliath in the world is he began the career of a young David Amelech. He caused the end, the eventual end, the downfall of the Pelishti nation. When Goliath went down, the Pelishtim started to go down. When David Amelech became king, his first order of business was to destroy the Pelishtim. He was with them at the time, if you'll remember the Medrash. And at the end, he destroyed them. But the first order of business that he took care of is, I'm going to kill the Pelishtim. By Shimshon being involved in Goliath and maybe even giving a spark of Kedusha over to Goliath and David Melech destroying him and taking that Kedusha for himself. That's what I mean by cutting off his head. Didn't mean like he was, you know, obviously he did cut off his head and bring it over to Shaul. But the point of him taking that Kedusha is to bring it in for himself. He started, he began the Yeshua B'nai Yisrael that ended with David HaMelech, the Mashiach, the Anointed One. And obviously, there's a reference to more than just that. One of the more famous members of Dun is his only son. What's the name of Dun's son? Chushim. Chushim ben Dun. Chushim, we all know the Medrash, right? Esau standing outside of Maris Machpelah, and he says, who says that Yaakov gets the last part of Maris Machpelah? I want to get the last part of Maris Machpelah. To which they said, no, you sold it to him. So he said, show me the star. So Naphtali had to run all the way back to Mitzrayim to go get the star. And Chushim, who is deaf, couldn't understand what was going on. He turned to his brother, his uncles, and he said, what's going on here? They told Chushim, oh, Esau is complaining about the cave. He said, this guy is going to stop my father, my grandfather from being buried inside Maros and Machpelah. And he took out his sword and he cut off his head. That's not just a cute measure. It's even greater because Esau's head rolls into the cave, right? And Yaakov, you know, looks at him and smiles. By the way, Tosvos in Tinus proves from there that Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Yaakov never died, because after he died, he smiled when he saw, saw Esau's head being cut off by Chushim and rolling into the cave. That's his raya. He said, see, he's not dead. He must have been still alive, even though he was dead, and he was embalmed, and he was made into a mummy, and he was being buried. doesn't matter. He wasn't dead, because he smiled. It's an awesome raya. Totally awesome raya. Regardless, that's obviously, it's a medrash, but the medrash is so clear that Chushim are the letters of Mashiach. And at the end of days, Mashiach is going to get up from Dun. Chushim ben Dun. And Chushim is going to come in and cut off the head of Esau, destroy Esau. And then all of a sudden, the head is going to be there and Yaakov you know, smiles. There's going to be something huge here that Ben Esau are going to be saved by a child of Chushim. And for that reason, the Midrashim bring down, it's brought by the Torah Shlema, that Mashiach's father is from Judah and his mother is from Dun. When Yaakov saw Shimshon, he saw the aspect of Mashiach that Shimshon had. Shimshon's father was from Dun, 
and his mother was from Yehuda. And he thought, maybe there's an ability for Mashiach to come from Shevet Dan. But when he saw what happened, that it didn't happen that way, that Shimshon went down, he said, I'm waiting for your ultimate Yeshua. The ultimate Yeshua that's going to happen through the end game, through David Amalek, which will eventually lead to Mashiach ben Yehuda, whose mother will be from Dan. It'll be the opposite, and that will be the final idea behind it. That's going to be who kills Esau at the end of the day. Hushim is a remez as to what's going to be, but Dan is necessary, possibly because you have Yehuda's Torah combined with Dan's Yashrus that the Nitziv talks about. You take that Yashrus and you take that Torah, you put it together and you come out with a Mashiach, a person that will not be able to be knocked down by anyone, who's so powerful, he can destroy anybody out there. And Munasi Techa talks about this on page 123 in Parsha's Nasso. Yaakov Vinu possibly went over here, and I'm going to end with this. Maybe, obviously, if you look at the sheet, guys, I have a lot more over here. There's a Tzfer Shlomo Rokeach, Ravino Ephraim, Torz Chaim, Vemunah. There's also a Rashbam and a Kliyakar, as well as a Ramban and Dadasakanim over here. But maybe, 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 maybe you could say that this is the shot behind Perak Shira. Anybody know where Lishwaska Kivisi Hashem comes up in Parakshira? There's no reason, right? Because Parakshira is a really weird place. But I found it in one weird place, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We can put this together. Parakshira says the tefillah of a rooster is Lishwaska Kivisi Hashem. When the rooster sees the dawn come up, he sees the sun coming out from the edge of the sky. He looks at it and he says, Lishwaska Kivisi Hashem. You think he's going cockadoodle doo. It's not cockadoodle doo, it's Lishwaska Kivisi Hashem. We just can't hear it correctly because we don't speak chicken. But if we spoke chicken, we would know that it's saying Lishwaska Kivisi Hashem. He's watching Mashiach come. He's watching the dawn rise. It's the rooster who's able to see it, the gever who's able to see such a thing. And that's why we say every morning, It's like, wow, the rooster made it into our brachos over here. It's that the rooster stands for what Mashiach is going to be like when we see the, the sun rising up in the sky. All of a sudden, we're able to say to ourselves, that's is what Mashiach is going to be. We are going to bring about Mashiach. And if that possibly could be understood through the context of what Shevet Dun has, plus what Shevet Yehuda has, maybe this is the answer as to what we're waiting for. We're waiting for someone to come up who's Yasher and as the Koach of Torah to put it together to create a person like Mashiach can be. I don't know, but this is the idea behind it. Let's stop right here, guys. Is there a Mashiach?